In our discussion class after last week's sermon, a question was raised about the appropriateness of David being held in such high esteem. You know, we had just learned of his failures as a father, and we are all well aware of his moral failure with Bathsheba and how he arranged for the killing of her husband. David certainly had his faults, lots of them. But there was one thing about him that outweighed his faults, at least in the mind of God, and that had to do with his heart. In spite of everything, he loved God. He really wanted to please him. And God knew it. After it became obvious that the first king of Israel no longer wanted to please God, Samuel informed Saul that the kingdom was being taken away from him and that it would be given to a man after God's own heart. Samuel did, however, have a hard time identifying such a man. When he was sent to anoint a son of Jesse as king, Samuel was impressed by David's older brother. He looked at him and thought he was obviously the one God had selected. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart." We judge people on the basis of what we can see. We try to be fair and look a little deeper than what we see on the surface. But we really don't have any way to look into the heart. God does. And another evidence of the divine nature of Jesus is that he could do the same. He could look into people's hearts. He could see people as God sees them. And, of course, he could do so because he was God in the flesh. In our text for today, we find Jesus looking into the hearts of three people or groups of people. The scribes, the rich, and a widow. People some might label as the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) Well, let's see how Jesus viewed them, beginning with the scribes. We're in Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses, and for appearance' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. You know, at times Jesus could be as subtle as a sledgehammer. With the people listening, after being questioned by the scribes, he turned to the disciples and said, Beware of the scribes. He then delivered a scathing condemnation against them, against religious scholars 
who were held in high regard by the people. Religious leaders who made sure they were held in high regard by the way they dressed and by the way they set themselves apart from ordinary people. They took dressing for success to the extreme. They loved to walk around in long robes, robes that would hinder a common man in his labors, robes that would let everyone know of their religious status. Now, it wasn't necessarily wrong for religious leaders to wear distinctive clothing. In fact, God ordained that the priests in the Old Testament wear distinctive clothing, at least while ministering before him. In Exodus 28, we find God telling Moses, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister as priest to me. God then went on to spell out in detail how those holy garments were to be made with gold, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, and precious gemstones. He also said in verses 40 and 41, And as for Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics. You shall also make sashes for them. And you shall make caps for them for glory and for beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. And you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. So it was not wrong for Jewish priests in Jesus' day to dress in distinctive religious apparel. In fact, they were commanded to do so, at least while serving in an official capacity before God. And whether religious apparel is appropriate today depends at least in part on one's view of the priesthood. If you believe in the priesthood of all believers, it's probably not appropriate for some to set themselves apart from others in the church by wearing clerical garb. If, however... You view some as still having a special role as priest in the church today. It may be appropriate. I think we must be careful not to judge those whose practice in this regard differs from our own. The reason for doing so may be very appropriate for them. And God alone knows the heart. Jesus' condemnation of liking to walk around in long robes, however, for appearance's sake, still stands. It was wrong for the scribes to dress in such a way or to behave as they did to be noticed by men. And Jesus expands on this in Matthew 23, 5 through 10, where he condemns both the scribes and the Pharisees and says, But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. But do not 
be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is, Christ. Not only did they wear long robes, they tied big phylacteries on their heads and hands and made sure their tassels were longer than normal. Now, obviously, we need to take a moment to do a comment about uh, phylacteries and tassels here. Phylacteries were little leather boxes that contained passages of Scripture. Now, last week we looked at the admonition to fathers to teach God's word to their children and to look for opportune moments throughout the day to, to talk about the things of God. And speaking of the words of God, the passage from Deuteronomy 6 concludes with these words. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Now, whether God intended that to be taken literally or to simply mean that his words should be on our mind and put into practice, by the time of Jesus, Jews were literally binding God's words to their forehead and hand. And some were broadening the straps of their phylacteries to impress others with their commitment to the word of God. And they were lengthening the tassels on their garments. Again, this was based on an Old Testament command. In Numbers 15, 37 through 40, we read, The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. God intended for the tassels to be reminders for those wearing them to be faithful to God's commands. He didn't intend that they be used as symbols of personal piety for others to observe or to lengthen to make sure everyone noticed them. The scribes did all that and more. They insisted on being at the head of the line at potlucks, on the front pews at church, and on being greeted respectfully by everyone, not just the Walmart greeter. They also liked to be called rabbi or father or leader. Today, they would probably like to be called reverend. Jesus made it very clear that we should not use titles to exalt ourselves over others. He said we are all brothers and have the same father and leader. Now again, we have to be careful not to jump to conclusions about the motivation for the use of titles. Only God knows a man's heart. 
Now, it's no secret that I hate to be called reverend. I'm not even completely comfortable being called pastor. I wouldn't want to give anyone the idea that I'm the only pastor or the most important pastor of Chatham Christian Church. We are all brothers. And as Jesus noted, we all have the same father. I've always taken that as a prohibition against calling a clergyman father. I had the opportunity to ask a Catholic priest friend about that just last Wednesday as we were working out on the elliptical machines at Fit Club. He told me that they don't view that title father as honorific, but as familial. Okay? That means not something to honor them, but just acknowledging a family relationship. And we discussed how Paul referred to Timothy and Titus as his sons in the faith, and how Timothy served Paul like a child serving his father. With that understanding, it might be acceptable. I'm still not comfortable with it. Having said that, I don't mind being called Grandpa even by unrelated kids in the church. So I guess I really don't think it's wrong to refer to someone as your father or grandfather in the faith. But we must be careful not to exalt some over others in the family of God with titles. And that was the point Jesus was making. The scribes loved being thought of as better than anyone else. And they took advantage of their self-exalted position. They used it to fleece the flock, especially the defenseless and easily impressed widows. And they did their best to impress everyone with long prayers that were obviously addressed to an audience other than God. When Jesus said they would receive greater condemnation, he was saying the higher they exalted themselves, the lower God would take them. That's obviously a warning to those who seek to be in the upper echelons of society. After saying that, Jesus noticed something that led him to comment about some at the bottom as well as those who might be considered in the upper middle class. Chapter 21, verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. The scribes made a show of their religion, and the rich were making a show of their giving, which was easy to do. In the temple. In fact, it was encouraged. Located in the court of women, where even women with purses could go, were 13 brass collection boxes. They were known as the trumpets because they were narrow at the top and wider at the base. They were each labeled for a specific temple offering for incense or firewood or whatever. 
People were encouraged to drop coins in all of the boxes. And they were designed to make a lot of noise as the coins bounced their way into them. If they had been available, they probably would have used receptacles designed like those we sometimes see in public places where coins roll round and round and round and round before they drop into the bottom. I love playing with those things. The idea was to give attention, draw attention to the giver and to the size of his gift. And if it was to be an exceptionally large gift, the offering would actually be preceded by the sounding of real trumpets. Jesus had already addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. When, therefore, you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Give it in such a way to be noticed or to be honored by men removes the possibility of receiving a reward from our Heavenly Father for doing so. Jesus said the honor we might get from men is all the reward we will get. If, on the other hand, we give in a way that honors God and God alone, He will reward us one way or another. But even then, our motivation... Forgiving should not be to receive a reward. Our giving should be motivated by our love for God and a desire to share His love with others. Our giving is to be a reflection of our heart. So the motive for our giving is far more important to God than is the size of our offering. And don't forget, God knows our heart. You know, we might fool people by the way we give, but we will never fool God with a spiritual bribe. Giving to be seen by men does not impress God. And it didn't impress Jesus. What did impress him, however, was the sacrificial giving of a widow. Verses 2 through 4. And he saw a certain poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. The widow is described as a poor widow. And the words used emphasize her extreme poverty. In fact, the two small coins she put into the offering box were worth a fraction of a penny. But Jesus was impressed when he heard their distinctive tinkling in her trumpet. In fact, he said she gave more than all the others put together. Why did he say that? 
Because they gave out of their surplus, and she gave all that she had. All she had to live on. Now, how could anyone do that? Well, the same way the Macedonians could give into the relief fund for the saints who were being economically persecuted in Jerusalem. You see, she gave herself to the Lord before she gave her offering. Writing to the Macedonians, in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, Paul said, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They gave themselves to the Lord. They entrusted themselves to him. And then they gave up their money. Now, they weren't striking a bargain with God. They were simply trusting him. And the widow was doing the same. In faith, she gave away everything she had to live on. In fact, it's quite possible that she had to save up the two coins to be able to give them the minimum acceptable gift that could be given unsupervised in the temple was two coins. I don't think she waited until everything else was gone and then decided she might as well give God the meager amount that was left over. She planned and saved to be able to give. And Jesus knew it. He also knows what we give. What it costs us And why we give it. I know he's not as impressed with my giving as he was with hers. But I trust he knows my heart and finds my offering acceptable. If our life, our worship, and even our offerings are to be acceptable to God, we must first give him our heart. I pray we've all done just that.